Welcome to Global Dispatches. I am your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this podcast, we discuss topical global issues and we go deep with foreign policy thought leaders and celebrities who discuss their life and career. My guest today, Anand Gopal, is the author of No Good Men Among the Living, America, the Taliban, and the War Through Afghan Eyes. And his book is easily one of the best and most interesting and important foreign policy books of the last decade. And certainly it's the most enlightening book about the Afghan war that I have read. And you don't just need to take my word for it. It was a finalist for the 2015 Pulitzer Prize, and well-deservedly so. As the title suggests, the book offers a rarely seen perspective on the U.S.-led intervention in Afghanistan by profiling individuals, both civilian and Taliban, and by telling the story of shifting alliances in a region in southern Afghanistan called Khas Uruzgan. In the conversation you are about to hear, Gopal discusses how he went about reporting these stories, what compelled him to travel to Afghanistan on a whim in 2008, and how his complexion both helps and complicates his reporting in Afghanistan and throughout the Middle East. Uh, When I was in Iraq a few months back, I was captured by the Iraqi army and Shia militias, and one of the big problems I had was trying to convince them that I was an American. Even though I had an American passport, they just weren't comfortable with the idea that somebody who's American could look like me. I think you can tell I was so thrilled to speak with Anand. If you have not already done so, definitely read this book. You'll look at the Afghan war and perhaps even interventionism in a totally different way. And as always, you can hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg or send me an email via globaldispatchespodcast.com where you can also peruse our robust archive of conversations with authors, think tank types, foreign policy thought leaders, and celebrities. And now, here is my conversation with Anand Gopal. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. From the very beginning, there's been a mentality in the press corps, which I've been sort of guilty of at times as well, which is that we tend to cluster in places like Kabul, which are essentially pretty safe compared to the rest of the country. And there's a bubble effect that's in place. We tend to seek out people, Afghans, who talk like us, who speak English, who share some of our values and ideals. And that's a very comfortable thing to do. I think it's... um, it's harder to try to push yourself out of those circles and, and begin to try to interrogate what people who are very different from us actually think about the conflict. So, um, and that's also there's a security aspect to it, and there's also, I think, more of a sort of cultural approach that we take to journalism uh, in war zones where it tends to be about the American side. So I think those are the two reasons. Um, unfortunately, I think we still see them in coverage of conflict areas today. So what compelled you then to, to try to go out and tell the story of, of Kas Uruzgan? 
if I'm, am I even pronouncing that correctly? Khas Uragan. Khas Uragan, yes, okay. Yes. Well, you know, when I came to Afghanistan first in 2008, uh, I took a, a pretty untraditional path, which is that uh, I wasn't actually a journalist when I arrived. Um, previously, I was doing uh, science. I was doing physics and chemistry. And and I, I took some time off and moved to Afghanistan just to get a sense of the country. And uh, so when I got there, I, you know, I wasn't sort of locked into the usual... Uh, networks that one finds oneself in if you're a foreign correspondent. Um, I was completely outside of those networks. I, I couldn't afford a translator. Um, I wasn't living in a bureau or anything. And so that immediately um, forced me to confront realities that I probably wouldn't have confronted otherwise. And so immediately I, was, I bought a motorcycle and I hit the, hit the road, went around the countryside. I spent time in villages. And so really from the from the very beginning, I, I got a very different taste of the conflict than I would have gotten if I'd just gone the traditional route. And that's really what got me started because once I started talking to people that were pretty far removed from um, my experience, uh, I found very quickly that the stories that they would tell about the conflict were very different than the preconceived notions of what the war on terror is about. Do you speak Pashto? Well, I, I, I'm able to speak uh, Dari today, uh, but I, didn't, I wasn't able to when I got in the country. Uh, when I landed there, I didn't speak anything, but of course, the quickest way to learn a language is immersion. So I was kind of thrown into this situation. Nobody around me spoke English, so I was able to learn very quickly. How did you um, come first to, to, to Khasurugan? Well, actually, uh, I first went to, to Kandahar and to other parts of the country in the south, and um, you know, I did a lot of reporting there. Eventually, when I met one of the uh, people who became a subject of my book, uh, Gila, um, who spent a number of years in hospitals gone, that's when I got interested in that district in particular. And so, uh, you know, I would interview her at length, and a lot of what she went through took place in that district. So I realized I, I need to actually go to the area to be able to check her story and to get more contacts. And so that's how I ended up going. Um, and Hasbro's gone is a tricky place to get to, actually, because, um, I mean, it's, it's very rem remote. It's a mountainous district, and there's essentially two roads in. And uh, both of those roads at various times are controlled by the Taliban or by various mercenary forces that are associated with the warlord. So uh, it, it takes a bit of subterfuge, I think, to, to get past some of those checkpoints. And so I took a very long sort of round about path to getting to Hasbro's gone, relying on sort of local uh, villages that I knew what were friendly, that, that people, places that um, I knew that would protect me. And so I, it took me actually almost two weeks just to get to the district where normally if you drive on a straight shot, it could take you from Kandahar, take you six or seven hours. So I'm glad you brought up Gila. She is one of the most compelling uh, characters of your book. Can you, can you, like tell her story uh, as you know, obviously you devote like a much of your book to it, but how did you, I guess, how did you first meet her and in what context did you first meet her? I met her after uh, she returned to Kabul. Um, and so her background is very interesting because she was somebody who grew up in Kabul um, in the seventies and eighties, which was a, a relatively cosmopolitan moment in, in that city because uh, the Soviets were occupying the country, but most of the war was happening outside of Kabul, in the countryside. So inside, uh, actually, was a place where um, women had some degree of rights. And, and so Hila was able to uh, attend college. She got a degree. She got married. Um, she ended up becoming a, a midwife. 
Then the Civil War broke out. This is a civil war that was the result of the various warlords, the uh, Mujahideen, who had fought against the Soviets. Once the Soviets had withdrawn, the warlords turned their guns on each other. And in the process, cities like Kabul just got reduced to rubble. And so she and her family were caught in that fighting. And she, at some point, um, realizes that it's just too dangerous to, to go on living there. And in fact, during that period, which is between 1992 and 1996, I think something close to the numbers, like 40,000 Afghans were killed. Um, and that's a sort of period that's not really been talked about much in in uh, when in news reports or in, in studies about Afghanistan. But for, for Afghans who have lived through it, it's really a formative experience because it was the Taliban that came after it that were there to more or less clean up that uh, the, the crazy infighting. Um, so she she fled that civil war situation and f- went deep to the south where her husband's home to home district was, and that's Hasurzgan, which is in the province of Urzgan in southern Afghanistan. And so she ends up there. And so most of the book is about her life in Hasurzgan, where she, as a, a urban woman and educated woman, mm-hmm. uh, is forced to confront the very patriarchal structures that exist in the countryside and so she has to sort of navigate uh, various forces and what was interesting in getting to talk to her and learn her story was that so much of what I had thought about sort of women's oppression in Afghanistan kind of was undone because in her case she moved to Hasurzgan and basically spent 10 years in her house. Um, She wasn't allowed out of the house at all and that was the case regardless of whether it was the Taliban in power or it was the the sort of post-Taliban warlords that the U.S. had put in power. And so it sort of indicates that the, the issue of women's oppression is actually much more complicated than it tends to be portrayed. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was even uh, one thing, it was even like the, the presence of her mother-in-law, sort of the guardian of the conservative ethos in, in the house, I mean, was a really another like compelling force just to keep her indoors, literally like indoors or in the compound for, for as you said, 10 years. Well, the, yeah, that's right. It wasn't just, uh, you know, men, it's a male system where men, men were oppressing women. Of course, that was the core of it, but often it would be women who are doing it as well. Um, and here you have her mother-in-law, who she's in her 80s by the time that Hila comes to this area, and she had been somebody who had gone through this process her whole life. You know, she had been victim of this sort of system when she was younger, and now... As an older woman, she had gained some sorts of rights because she was able to move around a little bit more freely. And I think she saw those rights tied to the continued subjugation of the next generation. So Hila mm. was essentially locked in the house. Um, and, and a lot of the book deals with her attempts to try to escape her house for, for various reasons, just for to go on a picnic. Or later on, when she gets bolder, she decides she wants to try to teach girls and women in the village, teach them basic skills like literacy and suing, and she sets up a, an underground suing center in her house. And and uh, amazingly, uh, I'm not giving too much away. She becomes a, a, a senator, right, or, or a high-ranking politician in the national government. How how did that happen? Yeah, this is a, a sort of extraordinary story, which I think makes her obviously very singular in many respects. But uh, she um, at one point gets caught between the various sides that were are the reality that so many Afghans have to live through after 2001, which is that you have the Taliban on one side, and then you have uh, strongmen, warlords, corrupt officials who have been put in place essentially by the U.S. Uh, intervention. And, and her husband ends up getting killed by a major uh, U.S.-backed 
strongmen in the province. And so now she's she becomes a widow and she's forced to flee. And her, her goal the whole time is to try to find a way back to Kabul. And through sort of extraordinary ingenuity and perseverance, she's able to make alliances with local forces in such a way that she actually goes back to Kabul as a senator uh, and becomes one of the most prominent people in the country. I mean, so I can understand how, um, actually, first, how is she doing today? Is she still in government? No, she is not. She, um, the uh, person who who backed her, the warlord who backed her sort of uh, rise, um, he found her to be too independent once, once she went to Went, uh. to, went to Kabul. So he, he dropped his, her, his support of her and she was forced to flee the country. So now she's in hiding. Uh, do you know where, I mean, have you been in touch with her? I have. Yeah. I mean, I shouldn't say where she is, but yes, of course, yeah. Uh, that's, that's really disappointing. Um, so another really interesting character, but one who I can imagine um, getting in touch with and interviewing was, was more difficult uh, is someone you call Akbar Gul, who, which you say is, is a pseudonym. Um, can you, I just tell me how, how did you meet this person? Well, so Akbar Gul is a, a Taliban commander and, um, from the very beginning when I got there, I was, I was of course very interested in trying to understand the other side, um, and particularly trying to understand what would compel somebody to join a movement that seems to me to be so obviously retrograde, uh, like the Taliban, just trying to get in into somebody's head and try to understand that thought process. And so I ended up eventually making contact with um, members of the Taliban just through my reporting. And I was able to go and I, I guess the time would be in bed with the Taliban uh, at one point for, for a few weeks uh, in Wardak province, uh, which is uh, a province bordering Kabul. And it was through meeting those figures in the Taliban that I, I found Akbar Gul. Uh, who's also from Wardak. And uh, Akbar Gul has a, a very interesting story because he was a, a frontline commander for the Taliban during the 1990s when the Taliban was in power. And he uh, was responsible for taking, searching houses and, and finding weapons. In fact, his name at the time was Mullah Cable because he, he uh, used a cable on people. So certainly not a very friendly guy. But uh, interestingly enough, what happened is after 2001, after the U.S. invasion, he and thousands of fighters like him essentially quit um, because they realized the writing on the wall. They, they realized there was no way they could be, defeat the United States. Um, and so he quit and basically for the next two or three years tried to live a civilian life. Um, you know, he tried at one point to open up a cell phone repair shop. He tried at another time to get a job uh, as a police officer in the new government. And um, for various reasons, he was blocked. You know, his, the police were very corrupt in his area, and they shook him down for money. Many tribal elders that he uh, looked up to were wrongfully killed or imprisoned by the U.S. or by the Afghan government. And because of these uh, circumstances, he came to the idea that there was no place for him in the current order, the post-2001 order. And so he ends up rejoining the Taliban, which is when I meet him. Um and have you been in touch with him recently? I mean, what's what's his current status? Uh, I, I have, and in fact, he uh, when the book ends up, he 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 gets arrested uh, by the U.S. and it goes to Bagram, 
Uh, and uh, when I sp uh, was in contact with him most recently, he's actually been released from Bagram and he's living at home and he's desperately looking for a way to get out of the country um, as a refugee. He thinks there's no future in Afghanistan and he doesn't want to stay there. Um, so one of the, the big foreign policy lessons that I drew from your book uh, is that you know, paradoxically or perhaps counterintuitively, the presence of American troops in any given province, and in your case, it's, it's in Khasurzgan, uh, uh, is actually destabilizing, right? It, it, that, it ha it, that local politicians or warlords, whatever you want to call them, use the presence of foreign troops to settle scores in ways that are just deeply un destabilizing. Um, that, yeah, go yeah ahead, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and the reason is because these these troops weren't these weren't peacekeepers. You know, they were there for a very particular purpose, which is to wage a war against terror. Um, and so that means finding. Can you can you describe like that dynamic? Um, which you know you spend a lot of your book describing it, but it's such a, I think a, a profound lesson about the Afghan war in particular, but perhaps about the role of of the U.S. military and, and foreign interventions more generally? Well, yeah. I mean, you have a situation, let's say, one year after the fall of the Taliban, so in 2002, where there were thousands of U.S. soldiers on the ground. But a very interesting phenomenon took place, which is that, on the one hand, al-Qaeda fled the country. So there's no more al-Qaeda in, in Afghanistan. And the Taliban, from senior leadership down to the rank and file, had essentially either surrendered or tried to switch sides. Um, and the reason they did so is not because all of a sudden they became, you know, Democrats or they s supported uh, the American mission, but b because they were doing what so many other factions had done before them, which is that when they were defeated, um, out of sheer survival, they tried to switch sides. So, you know, for example, when the Russians withdrew in, in the late 80s, a lot of Afghans who called themselves communists uh, rebranded themselves as Islamists as a way of survival. And so something similar was happening in 2001 and 2002 with the Taliban. Uh, so from top to bottom, the Taliban more or less ceased to exist. So you had no Al-Qaeda and no Taliban as an armed presence uh, in the country, yet you had thousands of U.S. troops, particularly special forces soldiers, who were there uh, and who were there ready to wage a war against terror. So they were looking for bad guys. They were looking for terrorists. And when there weren't actually people fighting against the U.S., when there weren't actually terrorists, the people that the U.S. allied with essentially manufactured those terrorists for us. So that would mean uh, that, uh, you know, it would be, for example, you had a piece of land, and I was a warlord who had connections to the Americans, and I wanted your land. I can go and tell the U.S. that you are a member of al-Qaeda or you're a member of the Taliban. And in those days, they would arrest people or kill them and ask questions later only. And so they, that's what they would come sweep you in. They would uh, they swoop in and they would arrest you. And then I would be able to take your land. And that process happened again and again and again. And that's why uh, you see this correlation between the presence of U.S. troops and the instability. Because um, there were places, I mean, there were warlords in other parts of the country. But when there weren't U.S. troops there they weren't able to use the troops to wipe out their enemy. And you cite the work and, of, uh, of my old high school friend, Noah Coburn. Uh, to, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, we, we, we were on the chess team together back in uh, the early 90s, mid-90s in middle school and high school. Um, but but he, he makes the point, he's an anthropologist now, and makes the argument, the study, that where there were no foreign troops, you didn't have that same level of instability, right? 
Well, really, yeah, that's right. He studies uh, one particular town north of Kabul where there's a bunch of local power brokers or strongmen, if you want to call them that. Uh, and But none of them were really more powerful than any other. So there's this sort of tenuous peace set in where they all sort of kept each other in check. Mm-hmm. But what happened in areas where there were troops is that whichever one happened to have access to the U.S. would use the U.S. to get much stronger than the rest, to wipe out the rest. And that would cause all sorts of instability, which would eventually lead to the restoration of the Taliban. And, and like calling them terrorists also meant like one thing also I should say that that was striking is that in part of this process was that, you know, the, the local politician or the local warlord would tell the U.S. troops that this guy's a terrorist and then they'd send them to Gitmo sometimes because they had a similar name to someone that, that um, they were looking for as well. Um, and one thing that is clear to me is that the, the sort of population of Gitmo, at least as represented by the people in your book, are mostly victims. Well, that's right. I spent um, many months researching uh, the sort of the, the background to the people in Guantanamo when I was aided in that work by the WikiLeaks documents, where a lot of these sort of classified uh, detainee assessments were, were released. And, and I just looked at Afghans, so I don't know about the non-Afghans, but as for the Afghans who make up the majority of people in, in Guantanamo, it astonishing the number of people who are there who are completely innocent um, and who are there for the flimsiest of reasons. Uh, you know, I have a whole chapter detailing uh, sort of some of the more absurd allegations that people have found themselves in. And one of the hardest things for me in writing that was that I had to choose just because there were so many uh, absurd allegations. Like, for example, one that I didn't even have space to include was a, a, uh, a young farmer who was... Uh, had his house raided and, they, and the U.S. soldiers found a book. And just by, they wondered, well, why would a, uh, a, a poor farmer have a book? Um, and so they arrested him and sent him to Guantanamo. And if you read the Guantanamo file, if you look at the reason for his detention, that's the reason that's listed is that he, there was a book that was found in his, in his uh, house. So I, I want to switch gears a little bit and uh, just talk about you, where, where you came from um, and, and how you got this um, just this this desire, this this um, will to want to to be a journalist and, and tell these kinds of stories. So where did where did you grow up? I'm from New Jersey, from the Jersey Shore, actually. Okay. Uh, are your parents from there too? Where, uh, what do they do? Yeah, my parents are are, are um, doctors, and in fact, my my mother worked for a long time with the U.S. military um, as a physician. Mm-hmm. Oh, like Fort Dix or something in, in New Jersey. Right, exactly. Fort yeah. Dix, exactly. Fort Dix and Fort Monmouth. So, yes, I grew up around uh, the military uh, for most of my life. Um, and uh, where did you go to uh, school? Uh, I went to NYU, and um, I, I studied math and physics. And, uh, you know, one of the formative experiences for me, I guess, like for everybody, was 9-11, because I was living very close to the Twin Towers mm-hmm. uh, on September 11th. And, uh, um, and I saw the attacks myself. I actually ended up getting pinned under a car for, for a couple of hours. Um, and I knew people so who were you're, you're in lower Manhattan? I was, I was literally like two blocks away at the time, yeah. What were you doing? You were just living down there. It was early in the morning. Were you uh, in college? Yeah. Exactly. I was I was at NYU and I was living down there. Um, and I remember, I think eight thirty or something in the morning, I heard a loud noise. And you know, if you live in New York, you hear sort of random loud noises all the time. Uh, so I didn't pay much attention to it. But then I turned the TV on and I saw that the tower was on one of the towers was on fire. And I went out and I actually saw the second plane hit the building. So um, 
yeah, I mean, that from that moment onwards, I was, uh, I guess, like many of us, sort of fixated with events overseas, particularly in the Middle East and South Asia. And that's when I first got interested in Afghanistan. I started following news from Afghanistan and Pakistan quite obsessively for years and years before I ended up actually going there. But you never decided to you know, stop trying to be a scientist at that point? Well, no, I, I figured I would just, I, you know, it wasn't even a thought in my mind that I could actually do something tangible with my interests. So I just continued down the path. But, uh, you know, funnily enough, um, funny enough that as, as time went on and as I read the news, I was increasingly dissatisfied with my own understanding of things. I didn't, you know, just like the question I mentioned before, like what would actually compel somebody to join a movement like the Taliban? It just seemed odd to me that the movement even existed or why, you know, why would why would it have this draw that apparently it had, um, where the insurgency was growing every single year? And so those kind of questions kind of festered inside me. And at some point I decided to just take some time off and, and try to see for myself. And so that's how I ended up landing in Afghanistan initially. So, I mean, like, I understand, like, intellectually why you would um, want to make that move and, and, and take that risk, frankly, of, of going to Afghanistan. Um, but how did you just just make that transition sort of like logistically or or um like uh, like intellectually like like how you know do you just you just like one day decide okay i'm not going to be a scientist anymore i'm going to go to <laughs> afghanistan well i've been called impulsive to a fault so perhaps yeah okay. I, th- I think i was that was part of it you know um i in retrospect, to be honest, I probably didn't think it through entirely. I just thought I would go, and um, I was—I had a desire to see, and I thought I can go and, and spend three months. And I've traveled elsewhere before. I'd been in the Middle East, mostly visiting friends, and so um, it wasn't like I'd never left the country or anything. But uh, you know, I thought, you know, why can't I do that? Um, what's the problem? And probably, I was helped there by my lack of knowledge and understanding of the country. Because if I, if I knew it as well as I know now, I probably wouldn't. And I advise people who sometimes ask me if they want to just sort of jump into a war zone. I, I usually tell them, don't do that. And, um, but, you know, ignorance sometimes is bliss. So, um, so yeah. I mean, I love it. Your, your plan was to figure out why does someone want to join the Taliban? And so you go to Afghanistan to figure out the answer to that question. Uh, yeah, essentially, that was it, yeah. Um, so how, uh, my understanding is you, you became a stringer for a few news agencies out there, right? Yes, that's right. Well, when I first got there, I mean, the first six or eight months, I was kind of just sort of, um, on my own. Uh, like I said, I had that motorcycle and I was going from village to village. Uh, eventually after I ran out of what my sort of meager savings, I realized I need to sort of make this sustainable. And so I started pitching articles. Uh, I started freelancing for the Christian Science Monitor at first, and, and they're very good um, in terms of taking freelancers who have no background. Uh, and so I started with them, and I was with them for about six months to a year, and then I moved to the Wall Street Journal after that. Um, so one of your, your big sort of scoops while you were with the Christian Science Monitor was an interview with Hekmatyar Gul, right? Uh, yes, that's right, yes. So that's how... Right. Can, well, actually, for those who are not aware, could you describe who he is and... Like how, and then tell the story of how well, you actually met him. Well, Hekmatyar is a, uh, a commander. He's an insurgent leader, I guess, not commander. He's a leader of one of the insurgent groups in Afghanistan. And he has a long history in Afghanistan because he was one of the major Mujahideen uh, leaders in the 1980s. He was very close to the CIA and the ISI. Um, he was considered a favorite of 
of them because he was the most ruthless. Um, he was the most adept at sort of killing uh, Afghans or killing killing uh, uh, Russians, and so he was favored. Um, in the '90s, he essentially started the civil war because he wasn't given the presidency, and so he was rocketing the city of Kabul, killed thousands of people. So. Uh, and then after 2001, he became an insurgent fighting against the U.S. And I actually uh, met one of his uh, one of his deputies or representatives who lives in the United States. Uh, and um, you know, because there's still these hist- strange historical links between the U.S. and Hekmatyar because of that, because of the 80s. And so one of his de- representatives lives in the United States. And so I had written an article. Uh, about Hekmetyar, uh, essentially telling, describing what I just told you, um, sort of describing the crimes that he was responsible for. Uh, and this person reached out to me and said, you know what, you have this all wrong. You, he's, he, he's not really responsible for these crimes. You need to get the other side of the story. And I said, well, look, I'm happy to get the other side of the story to give me some access uh, to him. And so he actually arranged that, and I was able to um, able to interview him that way. But that was a sort of uh, uh, sort of exceptional case. Usually, because I've interviewed actually lots of insurgent commanders, and and the way, interestingly enough, the way I got started on that was um, when I first got to Afghanistan. I was like, okay, how do I find Taliban or Al Qaeda, whoever, without getting kidnapped, without getting sort of putting myself in danger? And it struck me that the, the easiest way would be to go to prison, where a lot of these guys are being held. So there's a, a major prison outside of Kabul that has one wing just full of Taliban and Al-Qaeda. And so I ended up going to that prison. Um, I was able to sneak into the prison uh, almost once a week, posing as a relative of somebody inside there. And uh, by doing that, I actually ended up meeting a lot of really important uh, Taliban figures. And they were the ones who arranged for my safe passage into Taliban territory to be able to meet and interview commanders in the field. Um, do you think it's anything about your, your personality that also, um, or anything else about you, maybe that you're, you're not white, uh, that provides maybe like an added layer of, of protection? I mean, you know, you have these examples of like David Rode, right? Who, who went to go interview right. uh, a Taliban commander and then ended up, you know, kidnapped in, in Afghanistan, the right. New York Times reporter, or like Daniel Pearl in, in even worse in, in Pakistan, uh, like, right. Do you, like, is there like a, a character trait of yours that you might identify that enables you to, to, to uh, maybe ingratiate the wrong word, but that enables them to trust you enough? Well, you know, it's interesting. And I've thought about this. For example, if you take my, my skin color, my complexion, it actually works in, in, in multiple ways simultaneously. So on the one hand, uh, because I'm able to blend in, uh, I'm able to sort of just go undercover to places that I think David Road or others probably couldn't do as easily. And so I'm able to sort of just hit, hit, if I'm with a bunch of Afghans and I'm in Kandahar on the road or something, I usually, if I keep my mouth shut, can just sort of look like another Afghan. However, the problem comes when I do meet people for interviews uh, and I tell them I'm American, they get very suspicious because their conception in these parts, their conception of what an American is, is they don't look like me. So, um, it, you know, there's a lot of suspicion in Afghanistan towards the ISI, understandably, and I've been accused a lot of being a Pakistani agent of being, because I could very well pass for Pakistani as well. And, and so this is a major problem. Uh, so, in fact, for example, uh, when I was in Iraq uh, a few months a few months back, I was 
captured by the Iraqi army and Shia militias. And one of the big problems I had was trying to convince them that I was an American. Even though I had an American passport, they just weren't comfortable with the idea that somebody who's American could look like me. So I think it works in both ways. But more generally, is there a character trait? I'm not sure there is beyond... you know, you know, I, I'm just as inter- interested in what Afghans have to say as what, what Americans have to say. And I think that, um, I, you know, I, I, when I, the first thing, I think it didn't even occur to me when I first got there to try to ser- uh, search out U.S. troops, although I have embedded with Americans many times. Uh, you know, I was most interested in, in, in the Afghans. And, um, of course, I'm not alone in that. There's many others. But mm-hmm. I think That's that really more than anything else which is what um, sort of set me on that path. That I mean that that's that's really interesting. I, and there's something I've been I was sort of thinking about in the back of my mind, like uh, when reading your book. So I think that's probably really interesting for for people who are fans of yours and fans of your book to to hear. So you just mentioned that you were kidnapped in in Iraq. What what were you doing in Iraq? Well, I was reporting, um, you know, looking into the rise of ISIS, and uh, we went to a small town that was uh, about an hour south of Baghdad and it had been a town that had recently been under the control of ISIS but had just been uh, I guess liberated if that's the right word um, and sort of militias and militias and the Iraqi army were were in that village and um, there were a lot of accusations against the militias uh, and against ISIS of course and so I was investigating that and in the process of that I was detained by well it, it was technically it was the Iraqi army, but they are almost indistinguishable from some of these militias. Um, so in effect, I was detained by both. Um, and I was held for about a day and eventually I was, I was released. What, uh, what, what enabled you to be released? Like, what do you think? Do they, they finally believe that you're American and that they're supported by the U S yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I, I was able to contact just before, uh, they, confiscated my phone, um, I was able to fire off a text to a friend in Baghdad who was able to contact the U.S. Embassy. Um, and so the embassy was able to work on their end for a few hours. And I mean, even when they released me, they still stole everything I had, you know, took all my money and everything and, and let me go. But but at the very least, um, because the embassy was able to vouch for me, I was able to sort of, I uh, was able to be released. Um, and, and so what you were reporting on is, is something I think that's really, really important and, and interesting, which are um, sort of abuses committed against Sunni populations by these Shiite militias that are supported by the USA, right? And, and it's a, it was a subject of a previous podcast episode I had actually with Sarah Margon of Human Rights Watch. Who, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I presume you know. Um, I guess what, what did you see firsthand uh, about that, that dynamic? Well, so the surprising thing to me, which I wasn't prepared to, to, to see, was that almost every poor Sunni or ordinary Sunni that I met um, viewed ISIS as a lesser of two evils to the Shia state. And that was shocking for me. And I think, um, it does, I mean, obviously they would all say immediately that ISIS is extremely brutal, but uh, they viewed it as sort of a buffer to the state. Which I think now that I think back about it, um, sort of explains why ISIS was able to sort of spread so quickly in the last six months after, or for in the last year, taking Mosul in, in June and before that taking Fallujah six months prior to that. Uh, I, you know, there's tribes that had tried to, Sunni tribes that had tried to uh, get incorporated into the Iraqi state. Um, there were protest movements 
for the last few years, all of that was gunned down. And so a lot of these people made, I guess, a sort of Faustian bargain, uh, allowing ISIS to come into their territories. Um, and so that was surprising to me. And I think that speaks to the sort of the deep um, structural problems that are there in Iraq that can't possibly be solved simply by airstrikes. I mean, it seems like such a, a like a death cycle, right? Like the the Shiite populations are marginally sympathetic or marginally more sympathetic to uh, ISIS than they are to the, the Shiite militias. So the Shiite militias believe that the Sunni civilian populations are enablers of ISIS. So they reap out heap on exactly. abuses yeah. to them and it becomes this like horrible cycle. Exactly. And, and it's not like Shia, Shia civilians are untouched in this either. I mean, when I was mm-hmm. there in Baghdad, it was during, um, uh, during the Holy Festival for, for Shias and, um, somebody just rolled a car bomb into a crowded area full of um, Shia pilgrims and, and set it off and killed many, many people. So it's totally a sort of cycle of violence uh, that speaks to, I think, the sort of deeper um, way in which Iraq has been fundamentally broken since 2003. So are you working on a book project focusing on Iraq right now? Not a book project. I'm, I'm going to be doing articles. I think, uh, you know, after having done the Afghanistan book and the, the sort of sheer number of hours I've had to spend going back and doing interviews and retracing people's steps and stuff. I think I probably want to avoid that um, again. It will take another four or five years. But definitely I think uh, I'm going to keep doing sort of articles, magazine pieces and others uh, from Iraq. Now, I, I should first say, you know, I, 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 I hopefully you don't, you don't wait that long because, I mean, the four or five years or whatever, it, it was absolutely worth it. I mean, this your, your Afghanistan book was one of the best foreign policy books of the last decade, easily. Yeah, thank you. Um, is your approach to reporting in Iraq similar to your approach to reporting in uh, Afghanistan in the sense that you're trying to like, you know, avoid official sources and then kind of go out to the hinterlands? That's my instinct always is to, is to get out to the, to, to the hinterlands um, to see what people on the ground are saying, you know, um, my, the challenges I think for me in Iraq are, are a little bit greater than they were, in Afghanistan because I don't speak the language yet and I don't know the ins and outs of every single village the way I, I ended up knowing it in, in Afghanistan. But that also speaks to, I think, uh, an approach I take, which is that um, for every area that I go to, um, let's say a village or some district in Afghanistan or Iraq, I end up doing lots and lots of uh, preparatory research uh, in terms of trying to find everything I could ever that was ever written on the place, not just journalistically, but I like to read anthropological accounts, sociological accounts, etc. Uh, and to really try to get a feel for the place. Um, I do a lot of mapping of local, like the elders in, in, in communities or, or, or tribes, etc. I have tons and tons of maps that I've drawn up in my own, of my own that I have on my hard drive. Uh, and I found that it helps me tremendously because when I'm on the ground, Oftentimes, it's knowing about what questions to ask because people are not just going to tell you. You know, you can go in there and ask certain questions and get boilerplate answers. But if you know, for example, hey, didn't uh, you know Sheikh so and so live in this village ten years ago? What happened to him? Or you know, what is he doing now? You ask that kind of question, and it just opens up a world of uh, sort of information, and, and the narrative potentials there are, are tremendous as well. I mean, is is the um process though just far more dangerous in iraq now than it was in afghan afghanistan four years ago when you're reporting for your book yeah so certainly and, and in fact i would say the process is even more dangerous today in afghanistan than it was four years ago 
um, you know, I was thinking the other day if it was possible to do some of the interviews that I had done in Afghanistan, if it's possible today, and I'm not sure it is possible. You know, I, like I mentioned, I spent some weeks living with the Taliban in the mountains. I don't think I could do that today. Um, I think the world's just gotten a lot more dangerous for, for journalists. And uh, it's because, and also in a place like Afghanistan, the insurgency just fragmented. Um, there's fragmentation everywhere. There's so many groups. I mean, when, when I was reporting in Syria, it was shocking to me the number of, sheer number of groups that are there. Um, and you can have the trust of the people you're with, but then there's 15 other groups you have to worry about. So there's threats from so many different sides, not to mention the threats you get from the official sides too, um, from the states. What, what was the closest call you think you had in terms of, of facing a real, you know, mortal threat uh, in pursuit of, of your reporting anywhere in the world? Well, I guess uh, it would be back in Afghanistan uh, when I was with the Taliban. Uh, I, um, I was, uh, this is in Wardak, and at some point they had decided to uh, to go and uh, attack a fuel tanker that was coming down the main highway. And this is, they got like four or five groups of Taliban together. So it's all, all told maybe 100, 150 people. And I went along with them just to sort of document this to see what was going to happen. And sure enough, the fuel tanker came along the highway and they fired RPGs at it and, and the thing exploded in a fireball. But then um, aircraft started coming in and started bombing the area. And they, of course, they've been through this many times, so they knew what to do, and I had not been through this. So um, they fled. They scrambled in all sorts of different directions. I ended up sort of running in a, in a different direction on my own. But, you know, it was close enough that you could feel the heat of the blasts. Uh, and I ended up running into a, a village in the area and having to find my way back to the, to the Taliban over the next six or eight hours. I don't need to take up any more of your time, but uh, I just want to say thank you so much for, for speaking with me. Thank you. I really, again, thank you so much. No problem. Thanks a lot. Well, I must say that was a lot of fun. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. I post one of these conversations every Monday that is longer conversations with foreign policy thought leaders, luminaries, where we talk about their work, their life, and their career. Uh, and every Thursday, I post shorter conversations with think tank types and journalists about something more topical and in the news. You can find them all on globaldispatchespodcast.com, where you can subscribe to the app. Or I should say, you can download the app, but you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. And if you have subscribed to the podcast on iTunes and you love this podcast, please write a review. It helps other people similarly foreign policy-minded discover the podcast. All right. Thank you guys so much. Really excited for what we have in store in July. Great content coming up. So stick around. All right. We'll see you later. Bye.